What a matchup! And what a tee, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS on an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Aliens to ghosts, demons to angels, and from shadow people to the outlandish, Heidi Hollis is the Outlander. Outlander. Welcome, everybody, to my fantastic Friday evening. I know you guys missed me because I missed you. I know. You are listening to me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander. Welcome to the show. Get comfy, get cozy, get warm because, man, I'm in Chicago and I am freezing my tail off. I don't even know what to think anymore. I I don't know why I'm here in the midst of all this. I, I need to find an escape. But anyways, you guys, if you do not know where you've landed, if you did not hear the intro just now, okay, this show is about bringing outlandish and interesting topics to the forefront from aliens to angels, ghosts, demons, holy encounters, shadow people to Bigfoot to the outlandish or even perhaps, I don't know, a hollow earth. Hmm. I always say if it's weird, we're here and I hear somebody giggling. What was that? Um, (laughs) So anyways, if you don't know who I am, I am going to tell you. All right. Pencil. Paper, pen, I don't know, type this down. When it comes to the outlandish from bad aliens to good aliens to visions of Jesus to angels, personally, I am someone who has been there, seen that, experienced it, freaked out, found some answers after I calmed down, wrote about it, got over it, and now I am hoping to help others do the same darn thing and understand this crazy world of ours because, man, you know what I'm talking about. It is not normal out there, okay? If you want to learn more about me, you could go to my main website, which is HeidiHollis.com, H-E-I-D-I-H-O-L-L-I-S.com, okay? And you will discover who the heck I am. You'll find YouTube, Twitter, all that good stuff. So, I want to tell you guys how to hear this program because a lot of times people are like, gee, Heidi, how do I go about doing this? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you, okay? <laughs> it's really difficult. Go to your app store on your phone and you can get something called Inception Radio Network App, IRN. And uh, it's pretty fantastic. You can hear us there. You can, of course, hear us online at InceptionRadioNetwork.com. And uh, there's also this really handy thing called a phone. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but a phone, you could call 832-280-0830, and you could hear the whole program by phone. And then there's another number, 786-837-2262. And for those of you who are not chicken, you can actually call me or the guests while we're flapping our gums here at one 919-2355, or you could Skype us at Inception Radio Network. Now, you know, when it comes to my outlandish corner, which is what I have for the first 30 minutes of the show, and then I get into my guests and all that good stuff, 
feel free to call me, guys. I mean, even if I'm in the middle of, like, reading off somebody's email and answering their questions, you can always call in and, you know, we'll chat, we'll chat. Um, but if you have questions for my guests, it's best to probably wait till I'm done talking about this stuff, I guess. I don't know. But we'll just play it by ear, okay? I think that's fantastic. So, anyways, I have this thing before I get into it all, what I was just talking about, the Atlantic Corner. And uh, this is the part of the show where you and your stories, your questions, the things that you've experienced, the things that you want to vent, comment about, and maybe, I don't know, lecture me. Heck, I haven't gone there really, but get your own show if you want to do that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, but really, if you need some advice on things that are out of the ordinary, I will do my best and darndest to try to help you out. So feel free to write me at dusoutlander.com at gmail.com, D-A-S, outlander at gmail.com, or go to my Facebook, send me a message there, put a one in front of Heidi Hollis or Twitter. Follow me, people. Follow me. Uh, Watch how I walk, or I don't know. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, so anyways, I am going to get to my outlandish corner first and address a very, very interesting letter that was sent to me from across the pond from a really, really interesting lady, and... uh, you know, I'm always getting a lot of dark emails, and, and it's fine because this is, my, this is my area, I guess. Shadow people, spooky stuff, but guess what? I also wrote books about Jesus encounters, angel encounters, yeah, and some people do tend to uh, write me about that stuff too, but it's usually in book reviews. <laughs> um, but every once in a while I do get some really interesting emails, and this is one from Gillian. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Gillian, Jillian. Um It's not like the lady from X-Files. She had that name, didn't she? (laughs) So, okay, this is on Facebook. She goes, thank you for accepting my friendship requests. I realize that you must be inundated. Well, no, it's okay. I'm halfway through reading your book, Jesus is No Joke, and I needed to make contact with you. I feel ashamed that I have not had your courage to speak about my own experiences. The threat of being ridiculed wasn't something I could face, so only those closest to me know. There were physical changes in me when, well, I described it as God touching me gently and waking me up. But just a tiny touch was like nothing I have ever known and haven't since. I came out of it with a complete sense of knowing who I am and that God is real and that I am never alone. You'll understand that this is way more than faith. This is a sure thing that nobody can talk me out of. Girlfriend, I know what you're talking about. It happened over 10 years ago, and the feeling, although it's faded, stays with me. I wasn't seeking spiritual enlightenment or anything. I was reading a book called The Only Planet of Choice, I guess, (laughs) laying on a sofa at home when all of a sudden I was lifted and surrounded by, well, it was a bit like being underwater. And I suppose, but it was wet, a swirling sensation. During this time, something communicated with me, not with words. It was given an insight into our origins as souls, very much like the description in your book. Hmm, that'll get people wondering, gosh, what is Heidi's book about? Um, (laughs) Choosing to be here and then forgetting so that we can fulfill our role and take the learning back to the whole. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's about where I am. I did experience something like that, so it's very interesting. I like you get yearnings to be back home. I also know that I live a dual life. I know that nothing can hurt me, not really, but I also have to experience earthly pain, joy, all of the emotions and experiences that I signed up for. I am completely in control of my individual experiences. The physical changes were significant. 
I became more focused. My brain worked better. I had ambition and abilities that weren't there before. I became more physically attractive. I knew this from people's reaction to me. One of the most lasting things has been the opening of my third eye. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was having strange feelings of movement, almost as if something was boring its way into my head between my eyebrows. I really feared that this was a brain tumor, but it didn't hurt as much as becoming uncomfortable at times. I did some research, firstly, into what had happened to me, and then into the strange sensations in my forehead. My research came up with Dr. Richard Buck's work, Cosmic Consciousness, which fit exactly with what had happened to me. But like you, I struggled to think why I should become enlightened in this way when I wasn't even trying. Some folks spend an entire lifetime in a meditative state and still don't reach nirvana. Girl, I am on the same page with you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I know this is a lengthy email, you guys, but this is something I don't get to cover much. So you guys, just sit tight, okay? So Dr. Buck explained it more in evolutionary terms that made it easier to accept and gave me the hope that everyone around me would come to the same realization in their own time. In the meantime, I chose carefully who I shared this with and I didn't want people thinking that I thought I was better than them. A long-term relationship broke down because I had changed into a new being effectively and my partner thought I was crazy, even believed I would take our small children to join a cult. Wow. <laughs> if anything, I have very little time for organized religion. I love to hear choirs singing to God, though it often makes me cry and to see and hear the beautiful things that people are capable of in God's name. As for my third eye, it didn't take me very long to find out what was happening and to figure out that my third eye will move when someone close to me is thinking of me. If there is something around me, things that are visible to me, like a radar, if you like, I haven't really learned to communicate anything more than that. But I have discovered that I can activate another's third eye so that they have the sensation too. I can distinguish between different people as well. I was once in contact with a man through the third eye, and his vibration was so strong, it would give me a headache. We lost touch. Any man give me a headache, I would lose touch too. Um, but, but occasionally know that he is thinking of me. My new partner has a gentle vibration, and it's comforting to feel him when he's not physically around me. My third eye is also like a truth detector and will go bananas if I'm seeing, reading, or hearing something that's another piece of the puzzle that I need to know about. Apologies if you talk about this any further in the rest of your book or in the other book, which I fully intend to read. But <laughs> do you have any experiences of the third eye? I also wanted to say that I am so happy to find someone that has no problem with the coexistence of aliens and God. I'm sure it's not new, but it's new to me. As soon as someone starts bringing in other life forms, God can no longer exist. I have never seen a dichotomy between the two. God is the source of the universe, not just this planet. Thank you for writing this book and for giving me an insight into Jesus. I think that I was the same as you were, not giving him the credit. He is due that I know better now. Much love, Jillian, or Gillian. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you so much for writing me. That was It was a breath of fresh air to get your letter from across the pond, and I appreciate your taking the time to do that because... Uh, Interesting enough, it seems like when it comes to the topic of the Jesus topic, it's such a private and personal experience, uh, you know, people's beliefs and their experiences and, of encounters with him, uh, that they keep it to themselves oftentimes. It's a strange thing, or they only think their pastor is allowed to speak of such things, and it's got to be organized, it's got to be in a big fancy building, and I I personally don't get that either. So um, 
But when it comes to the freaky stuff that I also cover, um, people are just, you know, just a little bit more forthcoming because they don't have a whole ton of outlets all the time. Um, so I think because, you know, God's everywhere, um, people have outlets within themselves and, yeah, in God's house. So um, really, I truly thank you. So um, you were asking about the third eye. And uh, another reason I want to put out there for you guys that why I chose to go into detail in reading so much of this, this letter Um I think more and more people need to be more open about these things and, and not feel ashamed that, uh, you know, we keep these things to ourselves when it comes to God or, or these magnificent uh, experiences we have. I mean, don't be ashamed. You, you've already taken the step forward to, to make a difference. And a lot of times, you know, people do keep it to themselves. And there goes a huge lesson that a lot of us could have learned that just got lost. And I, I, that's a, that's a crying shame. I think it's a crying shame. And it, it, that is, uh, you know, it's sad that we feel so much fear uh, of talking about these experiences. But, uh, you know, at least you are doing something at some point. I have met people in their 60s, 70s, you know, that have pulled me to the side. and like, oh, my God, you know, 50 years ago, <laughs> I never told anybody this. But I'm like, wow. You know, gosh, that's a whole, that could have been a movie and it could have moved millions of people to maybe get a step closer to God. Um, you know, a lot of people just hold this in when during times when it really wasn't accepted to speak out of the ordinary um, because you might have been locked up. That's okay. I have friends in there. Um, but <laughs> it's just, it, you just, I, I don't know. We, we've got to, we got to make a make a change and uh, that's why I'm stepping forward and that's why I do what I do and that's why I'm as painfully honest as I can be with everything that I write say and do because it's um it's important and if I could even make a slight dent in the world and how they perceive us uh so-called people in this stuff I'm gonna do it I'm gonna just knock dents all over the place okay that's just how I'm gonna roll from now on so um you know you're asking about the third eye uh, yeah, I actually do write about it further in my Jesus is No Joke book, as well as my picture prayer book, um, where I I, I had um, something similar kind of happen like that, where my third eye got bloom, blown open, and it freaked me out because I was super sensitive to people being around me. And, you know, I used to, I, I don't know, there's so many scoundrels out in the world, and you're just like, you know, oh, God, I just wish I could see these people coming. And that's what I had kind of put out there and kind of prayed for. It's like, God, let me know the hearts of people because I'm tired of getting shocked at how horrible they are. You know, it's just coming out of nowhere with just horrific ways of being. And boy, did I get my wish. And uh, I actually, it was a very lucid, vivid dream, I guess you could say, that took me and showed me what it would be like people's emotions jumping on you like a bad smell and woo it was stinky it was stinky i was woo i did not want it and i woke up from this and i mean it just seemed to go on forever this this dream of and this is what this person is thinking this is and it was like it was so painful and people were so raw and so yucky i just didn't want anything to do with it i woke up from this in a panic like oh my god oh my god oh my god i was in college and my college uh roommate walked in you know to the room and uh and later a little bit later on and i was just like okay i gotta meet a person to see if i still have these you know sensations sensitivities and knowing other people's thoughts and she was as dense as a as a doorknob so i was like oh thank god and then i went 
driving to work and I started feeling those sensations come back, but it was not as strong, but it was to a, a level where I could handle it. And I got better at blocking it out because I really was like, dude, I don't really care to um, know what you're feeling. And it wasn't like people's words were just jumping at me like some psychics say, I, I could read your mind. I'm telepathic. Psh. No, um, it's just just sensations and feelings. So, yes, I do have a little bit of that um, still. And I, I, I think you get better with that and turning it off and taking a look and yeah all that good stuff so um let's see here coexistence of aliens yeah you know it is newer i guess um if people aren't saying jesus is riding around on a ufo um i'm cool with it because <laughs> i haven't seen him on it you know for myself i mean i you know i do have good friends that say that which is, is fine i they've seen that and that's that's cool i just haven't seen it myself um and you know and i never am one to say your experience isn't real Never. Um, I feel like, well, bless you. Who is that? So, so, somebody's coughing, sneezing on the phone. Okay. Um, so anyways, yeah. So if that is something that uh, somebody has uh, experienced, hey, I'm all good with it. And um, But I personally haven't seen that. And I feel like Jesus could stand on his own two feet where we don't have to say where he's standing. And if especially if it causes any amount of confusion out there. Um, I think people can know the hearts of men, God, Jesus, when he comes into the room. And it won't matter what ride he's on, if it's a cloud or a UFO. Um, so I don't think those details matter for me. So I don't even go there. So, again, um, Jillian, Gillian, I appreciate you writing. And just to kind of keep on the same level, I'm going to get to the next letter here. And uh, then we're going to get to my awesome, awesome guest. Oh, yeah. Um what does it say? Do you believe that angels, and this is written to me anonymously. I don't know why, but sometimes people are afraid to say who they are with these questions. It's okay. Do you believe that angels allegedly rebelled against God and caused the war of heaven? Here's another question. And why would angels rebel against God? Here's another question. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Well, and Mr. Anonymous, I have a feeling it's a guy. That's my sensitivity in third eye speaking to me. Um, <laughs> do I think that happened? I think it did. I don't know. I, I kind of do believe in some history of the Bible. Okay, I believe in all the history of the Bible because, my goodness, um, that's just me. I'm Christian. Hey, um, <laughs> why would they do this? Why would they rebel against God? I mean, if you think about it, why, why would your kids that you put all your heart and soul into rebel against you? Because they want to go and say they had the power and the maturity to do just that. Um, they wanted to take control. They wanted to prove something to you. They wanted to, I don't know, get uh, the house in their name. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Why does it make any sense? You know, why do we rebel against our parents? Well, if the parent is not the most positive person in the world, that may happen. Um, why would an angel do this? Uh, if they see all the power that God has and they think they could run things better, I think it could happen that way. Um, and I think that this is something that's an ongoing thing that's happening all the time when it comes to good and evil. I think good sometimes really ticks evil off. And I think that that's just gets them irked and they try to knock over good. I don't know. It's just opposites attract. Polar opposites, all that 
good stuff. So, um, yeah, anyways, I had a, I wanted to bring up something. Now, by the way, you guys that uh, want to send me emails, your letters, and all that good stuff, anything that you've experienced out of the ordinary, want questions uh, answered or some just regular advice or comments, write me, dasoutlander at gmail.com. And um, I want to get something out there because this, this, this kind of perturbed me, okay? I was watching, I don't know, Perhaps it was CNN. I have no idea. But I was watching this horrible situation that's going on down in Alabama, I believe it is, of a five-year-old that was uh, taken hostage by a madman. You know, they're calling him a madman. He's not, um, he's a survivalist. He's got some bunker. He's down underground holding this poor little kid um, who has uh, autism, I believe, and, uh, you know, terrorizing the kid. And, you know, so they they were going through their list on air, and they were talking about all the all the odd things that the neighbors and people that know him have seen him doing, and how he likes guns, and you know, scaring people with his guns and pointing them at people and and whatnot. I didn't hear the whole scoop, but uh, one thing that just <laughs> made me go scoop, you know, I'm doing, I'm going walking around, straightening up something in my place, and and <laughs> I'm like listening to this just barely, and they're listing all his instabilities. And one of his his things of instability, indicating his instability, this is a man who believes in alien abductions. (laughs) Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. I just froze. I'm like, what? So that that's that's to add to his label of insecurities because and mental illness, perhaps. I don't know. Um, because he believes that aliens are actually taking people against their will. I just, ooh, if I could have got in there and sat next to Anderson uh, Anderson Cooper and and said, hey, <laughs> this is really going on, Anderson. So sorry. But um, he didn't say that. It was one of the other reporters. But I believe it was during his hour that was repeating, uh, repeating, reporting to him about, you know, this guy's instabilities. And I'm just like... Ooh, if we had somebody, you know, like an Anderson Cooper out there who was um, who was standing up for us, people. We're not nuts. We're not crazy because we believe in this stuff. Don't categorize us with those guys. I mean, we could spot them out in a crowd. I've, I've held a UFO and paranormal discussion group for many years now, probably about 12 years. And, you know, we get those little interesting little oddballs that come in thinking, you know, nobody's going to realize they have a diagnosis uh, and think that they could blend in with us if, you know, they're paranoid about aliens. It's like, ooh, no, you're twitching and, you know, something going on. And, And honestly, I'm a therapist, occupational therapist, and I do work with a lot of different psych patients. And I am able to point out some things and go, "Mm, I know that diagnosis right there. Um, Gosh, people, what do we have to do to prove that we're okay? We carry jobs. um, We write books. We have research uh, out there, and uh, we can complete (laughs) sentences when we want to. Um, You know, I, I don't know. It's like... I only do what it is that I'm doing, putting word out there about this stuff, talking the way that I do, trying to keep it normal and regular because it's important. I think it's important that we put a face to our stories. We put a face and a voice to what it is we experience, whether it's been alien abduction. Thank God I have not have that. Okay. But I have seen some non-human things, and uh, but I, I didn't lose my mind over it. 
it was a little disturbing, but I wasn't one to be shy about it. I was like, hey, go to work. Hmm, I saw an alien. I went to an all-women's Catholic college, so they really enjoyed me in uh, theology courses. I'm like, what does it say in the Bible about flying discs and aliens? Because I've seen some, and um, and <laughs> the nuns almost shunned me. I'm not Catholic. That probably was a problem, too. Um, I am Christian, though. I learned a lot, a lot of things I had no idea, no idea, differences between Christians and Catholics and why they say that. Why do they say you're you're a Christian, you're not Catholic? I, I believe in Jesus, so do you. So I just, I think I like to look at more things we have in common than differences. I think that's a lot more interesting. So, and I think that's a lot more unifying. But anyways, I'm getting off course here. Um, I, I, what I just, I, it just really irked me, though, to hear that, you know, this madman, he likes to point his gun at people. He likes to dig holes and take poor little five-year-olds down into them. And by the way, he believes in alien abduction. Wow. Wow, holy smokes. That's really, that was a, I mean, I felt that one. I felt that one. I I just, ooh, gosh. Anderson Cooper, give me a call. I think you're cute. Um, and let me know, what do you think? Why would you guys say that? Why would you say that? Oh, I don't know. I think that we're okay. Okay, we're we're not all out there, you know. I don't think, you know, again, like I said, we could weed them out. We could weed them out if we spot one that's a little little bit more different than uh than is what is normal i mean we're farmers we're we're business people we're lawyers we're doctors we're dentists i have talked to the whole gamut of people and uh we have seen aliens some of us have experienced aliens and uh we're still okay and we don't abduct kids you know that's just kind of like that boy scout thing you know with the um they have against uh, homosexuals uh, running boy scout troops you know it's just like really you know, where's the, where's the problem? I, I, I don't know. Where's the correlation with there being a problem? I just, you know, it's just like we're not going to let priests run, uh, you know, churches because, gosh, there was a problem with that once. You know, I don't see that correlation. I see the correlation between people who don't have their minds straight. Yeah. But uh, come on, give me a break, people. Give me a break. Okay. All right. I'm rambling now. Um, you know. I wanted to also let you guys know I am freezing here in Chicago, and uh, we have some strange weather going on, and I am sorry, but it is obvious to me and a lot of us. I mean, it's been rather mild, and a few days ago, it was 60 degrees here, or more. I think it was 61 or something. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that there is a major, major problem going on with our ecosystem or or our planet, or what do you call it, our environment, and everything else connected to it. How's that? I don't know what to tell you. I think it's uh, I think it's very scary, and I think it's really sad if we don't start picking up the pace and uh, start taking it serious. And and I'm going to tell you, I know, personally know, um, a gentleman, a very, very super, super duper smart um, scientist, who had created a self-sufficient uh, engine, that was able to literally pull the energy from the air. I am not scientific. Um, <laughs> able to pull this, the electricity, whatever, from the air and, and to just the perpetual motion uh, of, of this engine. And uh, I had a good friend, believe it or not, um, that is uh, that used to be a former um, head of the Israeli uh Air Force Engineering Department. He's actually designed a lot of our planes here and uh, actually is a 
really good friend of mine and uh he was working with this gentleman and uh they presented this his work to Israel to back it up to create larger engines like cars, you know, to save the environment. And let me tell you this, you know, this this engineering friend of mine that was assigned to take apart this scientist's work to see if it did what it said, and he said, yes, it does. They were not interested. The United States government was not interested. Canadian government was not interested. What does that tell you? That tells you they already got something like that. And it and it also means they don't have the true interest they say they do to save our environment, to save our planet. Now why why would they be like that? What's going on, people? There are things out there that could save our behinds and they are turning their heads. It really angers me. And it's something that I, I personally have witnessed and know about and um it's a joke. It is a joke. Them, dis- them saying that they want to save this planet, they want to save our environment, when they're being presented with stuff like that, and they won't, they won't put the money behind it to help the situation at all, to get rid of these gas-guzzling things that are destroying our environment, our planet, our world, and uh, ruining our, our weather patterns. Even I mean, oof, where are where are be- bumblebees going? Where are the bees going? Honeybees, all that. It's I mean. I think it was Einstein that said, if you want to kill the population, take away the bees. You won't have anything growing, pollinating. Nothing can grow. The animals can't eat it. And uh, bigger animals can't eat the smaller ones that are eating the plants. So besides elephants, okay, and giraffes. Okay. Um, (laughs) All right, you guys, you know what? We are going to go to our first break here, and we are going to come back with our awesome first guest, Rick Osman. Ooh, I know you guys are absolutely ecstatic to hear what he's got to say. We are going to talk about the hollow earth. Mm-hmm. You are listening to me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander, and Inception Radio Network, and we will be right back. guys, Jamie Havikin here for Heidi Hollis's The Outlander. Tune in to Inception Radio Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right after the stench of truth for The Outlander with host Heidi Hollis, right here on Inception Radio Networks, Fridays at 9 p.m. I'll see you there. Thank you. Do you have a smartphone? If so, Inception Radio Network is the best app for you. Available on iTunes, Android, Samsung, and most other app stores. Just search Inception Radio Network. With the app, you can listen live, check out podcasts of recent and past shows, view our videos, see what shows are coming up, who the guests are, and, via the chat room, send live questions to those guests. You know it makes sense. Check your app store now. Inception Radio Network. I'll see you there. Carl Sagan once wrote that the questioning mind needs to be instilled with both skepticism and wonder. For the universe is a pretty big place filled with undelved mysteries, sciences, and life that we've barely begun to comprehend. 
Every month, Intrepid Magazine brings you both the wondrous and the skeptical. Intrepid Magazine focuses on science, metaphysics, UFOs, politics, conspiracies, and unexplained phenomenon, all offered up by Intrepid's cadre of writers and contributors, comprised of a host of seasoned authors, pundits, and recognized names in their fields. The universe is indeed a big place, and where other magazines leave off, Intrepid Mag is just beginning. Subscribe to Intrepid Magazine today at www.intrepidmag.com. That's www.intrepidmag.com. You're tuned into Inception Radio Network, bringing you the very best alternative news, interviews, and more. 100% quality, 24-7, 365 for the last three years. Get advice on aliens to ghosts, demons to angels, and from shadow people to the outlandish. Explore the paranormal with Heidi Hollis. The Outlander. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander. Remembering always, if it's weird, we're here, and we are giving you advice and insight on outlandish topics, and the phone lines are always open at one 919 and I am going to get to our fantastic guest for this evening, Rick Osman, who is a former Special Operations Forces for Equipment Acquisitions. He later became a researcher of unusual history Archaeology, paleontology, geography, cartography, cryptozoology, and any other ology you can think of, cryptography as well, and hollow earth theory. He is the author of The Graves of the Golden Bear, mm, one of their honey bears, uh, ancient monuments and fortresses of the Ohio Valley. He also has a site and blog you can visit at thehollowearthinsider.com. Everybody, round of applause. Rick Osmond, woo! There's a big crowd out there, Rick. How are you doing yeah, this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. Fantastic. My goodness, it sounds like you touch on things that I have not really had a lot of folks come on talking to me about. I mean, Hollow Earth and, you know, pre-Columbian discoveries. I mean, let's just go there. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and what you've uncovered. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, let's let's see. Most recently, this one has been... Uh, just this week, in fact, I got information about um, one of the early explorers, Champlain. So if you go to Lake Champlain up there in the northeast in New England, it's named for him. But he was actually primarily exploring Canada. But one of the things he encountered was a battle between two Native American groups one of them being the Iroquois with their greater numbers of about 200 against the people he was with, he and one companion. Uh, that tribe had a group of about 60 warriors. Now, these warriors wore wooden armor that was sewn together, and they carried a spear and what amounted to a sword, and they formed a phalanx just as the Greeks, Romans, Macedonians, Egyptians, everybody had done for thousands of years in warfare. So that begs the question, where did they learn to do that? Where did they learn to use armor? Uh, I mean, they 
they divided it up so that the archers were behind the phalanx just just exactly like the Roman legions would have fought it. And and only because Champlain and his companion had firearms using buckshot were the 60, 62, able to overwhelm and uh, disperse the 200 Iroquois warriors. So there are a number of indications of Roman culture, not just Roman artifacts, but Roman culture or Roman military culture specifically in North America, stretching from Canada to Florida and all along the Mississippi, Ohio, and all the tributaries. And it takes the form of both fortresses and watchtowers slash signal towers uh, because they... There are enough indications in the 18th and 19th century literature to know that there were these stone watchtowers along all the major rivers. And they were all line of sight. You could see from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And usually, for instance, at Moundsville, West Virginia, where the Grave Creek Mound is, that had this little mysterious inch-and-a-half by two-inch tablet with writing on it that certainly looks Venetian, um, there were 16 watchtowers, not all of which could see all 16, and there were only two of those that could not see the top of the mound itself. But they all had a line-of-sight communication that stretched over miles. So part of my research has been to find where are those same spots in my neck of the woods, which is minor tributaries. And I haven't had a bit of trouble finding them, which is a little bit weird. Oh, you got to be kidding me. I was just going to say, how, you know, where are they? I mean, and you've come across several? Yes. Uh, anytime that you find a mound, you can find other high spots that would form, just by natural topography, a line of sight communications network. Now, as I was telling you off air, I'm near Vincennes, Indiana. Vincennes has a mound right in town. And from that mound, you can see another mound that's to the west-southwest. And from that mound, you can see to a mound that's in Illinois on the other side of the Wabash River. And from that mound, you can see all the way to Red Hill State Park and the big hill there, which is near Olney, Illinois. <clears throat> so this line of sight communications... And I, I didn't dream this up. I mean, this this is <laughs> going back into the antiquarian studies in America for nearly, well, actually, in ex, now right at 201 years because the Antiquarian Society was formed in 1812. So for 200 years before I came along, people were already documenting these things, but no one had ever said, well, you know, it looks just exactly like how they did it in Portugal and Britain and Gaul and Egypt, which it does. looks just like it. Same same setup. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, I mean, I, I, when you say that you, you've discovered, I mean, have you found also remnants of these stone towers at all? That uh... Most of them have been torn down and the stones reused in anything from walls to stepping stones to mostly. Then the most common use has been railroad bedding. Hmm. My goodness. And, and also the fortresses. We haven't even gotten there yet, but there were a number of fortresses that were documented. They're actually 
in the literature, big stone fortresses. And in one case, it was attributed to, actually in more than one case, but one very strong case, it was attributed to the ancient Welsh in the legend of Prince Matic. I don't know if you've ever heard of Prince Matic. Mm, it does not sound familiar to me, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's spelled several different ways, but usually it's M-A-D-O-C. Prince Matic in 1170 was the minor bastard son of one of the kings in Wales, and he wasn't going to inherit anything. He said, what little I am going to inherit, I wanted his ships, and I want anybody who will go with me to go with me, and they went to America. Okay, that's the most common version of the legend up until just about five or six years ago. But um, a guy by the name of Alan Wilson and his research partner, Baron Blackett, in Wales, started translating some of the oldest books that exist in Wales. We're talking 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries. Yes, all the way back to the 4th century. They still have records. So much for it being the Dark Ages. I take that back. It was Dark Ages, but not because of the reasons they give that Rome had collapsed and learning dissipated. That's not accurate, at least not in Wales. Gotcha. So... Wilson and Blackett have reconstructed this timeline of Prince Matic, who, according to the records, actually there were more than one Prince Matic, but also according to those records, same records, there was more than one King Arthur, and which explains why everybody says, well, Arthur's just a legend, nobody lived 210 years. Well, no. There were two different individuals over a period of 210 years that had the same name and were both king. It's kind of like Prince Edward or Prince Charles. It's like, how many of those have there been, right? Right, right. Interesting. So well, anyway. Do, yeah. So anyway, the most recent, one of the more recent things that's developed, in fact, since since I wrote my book, on the cover of my book is this emblem engraved into a, a stone, a living rock wall that's over a cave in Alabama. And it kind of looks like the Roman A that doesn't have a crossbar with a Y overlaying it, so that the tail of the Y extends down between the legs of the A, if you can envision that. And I thought, well, now that's cool because this cave is called Welsh Caves, and the local legend is that the Welsh were there, Prince Maddox's whole bunch, except that didn't fit with the A. There's, you know, that's not a Maddox. It's something else. So I went back and I started going through all of the legends and archaeology in Wales related to Arthur, and I found that, in the, according to legend, um, Uther Pendragon wanted this woman who turned out to be Arthur's mother and Merlin said, okay, well let's give her some mushrooms and she'll think that you are her now dead husband that she doesn't know is actually dead. So they did that. And Arthur was conceived at Tintoggle, a castle on the West coast of Wales in the 1960s. Although I didn't discover it until just three or four months ago in the 1960s, an excavation came up with a slate, you know, like a writing slate, from Tintoggle, and it has an almost identical sigla on it as that engraving over that cave. So, if yeah, if if Arthur was real, 
and he was really conceived there, then he probably would have been raised there into at least into boyhood. You know, even though he's the son of the king, he would be well the bastard son of the king, and um, there was probably a whole lot going on there where all of the offspring would vie for the throne. And that probably included his half-brother, Maddox. Well, to appease things, and this is according to Wilson and Blackett, when Arthur did take the throne, he said, okay, Maddox, I'm going to make you the admiral of the seas for the nation of Wales. And he did. And Maddox put out to sea with a fleet to, you know, learn how to do fleet stuff. And something happened, some huge event, like perhaps an extraterrestrial impact event, comet, asteroid, whatever. And things went really bad in Wales and all of the British Isles, and even into northern Europe, for a very long time. And there was famine, and it was nasty. But at the same time that this event happened... It blew Maddock and his fleet way off course, way west, in fact. What, what, can I ask you, what, what's the evidence of this uh, cataclysmic event having actually taken place? There's evidence, very clear evidence of a tsunami in the Atlantic in uh, 537, 536, 537. And you can actually still see the evidence of that in the Carolinas where the tsunami waste debris is still piled up 1500 years later ah, okay all right that's interesting that that's uh fascinating so that and this is what steered him off course to land in the americas yes okay it, it, you know i i'm curious too i do not know the names of these dwellings that have been found especially in the new england area mm-hmm. of these <laughs> What a matchup! And what a tea, Mike! MetroPCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to MetroPCS on an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. MetroPCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on MetroPCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Uh, stone structures half built into the ground, um, but that were pre-Columbian period. Are, are you saying that they're responsible for having created these no, dwellings? I'm say, no, I'm saying my whole premise is that a lot of cultures mm-hmm. have crossed oceans and not ah. necessarily all coming this way. Some of them actually went the other way. There's pretty strong evidence, very strong, I consider it, that Columbus, when he was sailing... Because he actually had, he did a trade route. He he was like a long haul trucker before he became the explorer. He was a long haul (laughs) trucker that picked up dried fish in Bergen, Norway, and carried it all up and down the European and Mediterranean coast, all the way to Jerusalem. And he ran that route for several years. And he actually also ran a route out past Iceland and possibly past Greenland, but it didn't didn't find what he was looking for. And it was only after that that he went to first Portugal and then to Spain to fund a direct sale west. But he already knew there was something here. Now, getting back to Arthur and Maddock, when this event occurred and blew Maddock to North America, 
Well, there wasn't much left of his fleet after all that, so it took him 10 years to rebuild his fleet and assemble what was left of it as far as sailors and crewmen and complement of officers and provisions. So he, it was 10 years before he got back to Wales. Well, but after 10 years of famine, because this asteroid or whatever it was, ruined the ecology of Britain, um, Arthur said, really? And it's green? And there's nobody there? Let's go. And they did. And for two years, they found out, first of all, that he was wrong about there not being anybody home. And the ones who were home were real upset about the invasion. And they fought their way from Mobile Bay up to the Ohio River and occupied an existing fortress that, that existed on the Indiana side of the river, just almost directly across from Louisville, Kentucky, three miles south southeast of Charlestown, Indiana. It's called Devil's Backbone today. Uh, and if you go there today, it's an Indiana State Park, Charlestown State Park. For 67, 68 years, it was an Army ammunition plant. And nobody could go in there. And there were a lot of changes made to the terrain without any feasible reason uh, that erased a lot of evidence. And that was secondary to the damage that was done in 1892 to 1895 when they quarried all the stone from the fortress to build the Big Four Railroad Bridge across the Ohio River. Anyway, um, yeah, these things were destroyed on purpose, just like the watchtowers. A lot of them were destroyed on purpose. Again, railroads. Railroads in collusion with the U.S. government. Now, do you think, uh, and part of that, I mean... It has to, I don't know, it has to cross the mind of some people. It's crossing my mind when it when it was done purposefully. Do you think that uh, early on, you know, they they didn't want the evidence of there having been somebody uh, like themselves having been there before them? Do you oh, think that part of that oh, was involved? It was all of it, but it was oh. all of it for a very specific reason, and that is what's called the terra nullis. And if you went to Catholic school, you might know about this. <laughs> The Terra Nullis was a papal bull issued in 1452 telling all the explorers and everybody else uh, who was Catholic that if you go to a land and you discover a new land and there's nobody there that's Christian, then all the people who are there are, oh, well, they're good for slaves, I guess, but not much else, and claim the land in the name of the church in your country. Well, that's what Columbus did, of course, when he got to San Salvador, he planted a cross and the Spanish flag, and he said, I claim it, and he did a ceremony and the prayer, and it's now it's Spanish territory. But, but if there were Romans or Welsh or St. Brendan's Irishmen or anybody else in North America, and they were Christian <laughs> before Columbus, then all those land claims go out the window. So it, it, in the name of Jesus, <laughs> they claimed uh, and, and killed and maimed and destroyed uh, if they weren't they essentially... Practiced they practiced that, genocide, yeah. Oh, my goodness. If it, you know, and it's like uh, oftentimes I hear, you know, there's still a lot of lingering hate even from like way back when these types of uh, conquests and, and taking over of different lands. And uh, a lot of people like, you know... 
the Catholic Church should apologize, you know, to what they do to our country way back when. And it's like, gosh, those were different times. But, you know, it's still true and tr still acknowledge that, you know, the, the, the discoverer of, of America w were not the people who lived here already because they didn't identify themselves as being yeah. civilized. That's that's crazy to me. Oh, the, the natives did. The natives considered themselves civilized. Oh, exactly, but not the people that came over. <laughs> and they had they had writing, they had mathematics, they had astronomy, they had broad, really incredibly broad trade networks. You can find obsidian from Yellowstone National Park, what is now Yellowstone National Park, all the way down into Guatemala. You can find conch shells from the beaches of Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, all the way up into Ontario. You can find mica from South Carolina or Southern Illinois all the way down into the Yucatan and, and perhaps, although they won't admit it, all the way down into Peru. It's uh, It blows my mind. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the history books need to be rewritten and have uh, <laughs> the what we truly all are starting to realize that, you know, we're already still, you know, we're turning to the to the natives for answers to things that we we just don't have the answers to. I mean, spiritually, emotionally, guidance, and some of the things that the land can teach and and provide. I mean, we're going back. We're going back to it. So it, it's it's fascinating to me. I've, I've got a comment here from the chat room. Uh, someone is saying there have been arrows originating from the area of France that were found on the east coast, dating back beyond Clovis. Are you familiar oh, yeah. with this? Yes, absolutely. A uh, guy by the name of, um, uh, wow, <laughs> name just went right out the window. Dennis uh, Stanford is an employee and a high up in the Smithsonian Institution. And he and a few of his colleagues have identified what's called Salutrian projectile points as being the source of the technology that became Clovis. But they're 5,000 to actually 7, 9,000, 5 to 9,000 years earlier than Clovis. So they couldn't figure out how that happened. It should have been a direct outgrowth if it was going to be an outgrowth. Oh, goodness. So a place called um, Cactus Hill in Virginia has pre-Clovis that goes back 16, 18,000 years. You've got um, another site called the Metacroft site in Pennsylvania that goes back they're now admitting in excess of 18,000 years, but the guy who's working the site says, yeah, well, you better get ready for 50,000 years. So people have been in North America a whole lot longer than what most of the archaeologists, anthropologists will tell you. What are some of the reasons why you think it really, truly is besides ego, or do you think it's all ego? Um, no, it's not all ego. There is a lot of ego. Don't get me wrong. There's a, there's really an overabundance of ego. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also going back to the whole land claim thing. If you admit once mm. that people were capable of crossing the Atlantic Ocean any time before Columbus, then you're opening up everything to complete scrutiny including yeah. those land claims. And if we if you want to take that into current day, what does that mean right now? That means that oh well, let's see. 
we have the Chinese government holding all of the debt for the United States government. And by the way, the only thing that the United States government has that has any value is the land that's within the Bureau of Land Management. You know, that's a perspective I haven't heard anybody bring up before. That's that's fascinating. It's like, ooh, yeah, you know, that's, uh, you know, who gets to stake claim here if, you know, others said that they were here first, you know, hold on, let's back it up here a little bit. Um, well, exactly. I mean, there's... Yeah, that's 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 absolutely amazing. Now, if others have, uh, you know, if if these things from from France, these arrowheads were found uh, originating from France, were there other items that have been found in the United States that that indicate that, uh, you know, coins or anything like that? Yeah, there have been a lot of coins. In fact, uh, a friend of mine by the name of Lee Pennington did a a rough assay of the number of Roman coins from second to fifth century. Um, almost all of them are second century, incidentally, but they are numbered well into the hundreds now. Wow. It's not just one or two here and there. There are hundreds of them. So, but that's not the only artifact. Uh, there's another artifact that is a, a stone ball. And if you've been to any artifact shows or a lot of museums, you'll actually see these. You'll see a lot of them as clay balls as well. But when you see a stone ball that's about the size of a tennis ball, that was actually also a projectile, a missile. It was too big to use with a common sling. We know that everybody used slings on every side of every ocean. It was probably the first augmentation of natural throwing power. But those tennis ball-sized stones are everywhere along the rivers, and they they don't seem to serve any utilitarian purpose, and yet they're very well-crafted. They're uniformly spherical. They're all pretty uniformly sized, and they only serve one function in the history as we know history, and that was to throw at somebody with a lot of force. Now, the Romans used a machine called a ballista, and they could take a ball that size, which is about two pounds, or they could throw a ball that weighed 100 pounds. And at Masada, when Rome laid siege to Masada in, I think it was 70 AD, they used a one-talent ballista. If you did a lot of biblical studies back there in your Catholic school, you heard <laughs> the word talent, you know, a talent of silver or whatever. Right, yeah. A, a talent is interpreted as anywhere from 78 to 100 pounds, depending on who's doing the interpretation. But Josephus, writing in the first century AD, late first century, said that Rome's ballistas were able to throw a one talent ball a quarter of a mile. Now, think about a machine that can throw 100 pounds a quarter of a mile Goodness. with no gunpowder. It that's, was, yeah. that's that's awe inspiring. That's just like unheard of. That's uh you know, things that they uh they think that back then, you know, they weren't capable of doing such things. Well you know what, Rick, we gotta get to our our first break here while we're chatting with you. And you know, you guys, you're listening to me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander on Inception Radio Network, and we will be right back.
have some fun? Maybe get a little bit of insight. Get a lay of the land. Want to know what's really going on? <laughs> do what I do. Listen to Future Theater. It airs every Saturday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Inception Radio Network.com. We'll see you there. You can catch each of these amazing shows every week on Inception Radio Network. Mondays, we have the Jerry Pippin Show, 7 p.m. Eastern, followed by Epic Voyages at 9 p.m. Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the real Twilight Zone, hosted by Alan Jones. This is followed by the Kevin Cook Show at 9 p.m. Ken Storch and Todd Kinnear bring you Paradigm Unhinged on Wednesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern, followed by California and MUFON Radio at 11 p.m. Just Energy Radio with Dr. Rita Louise is Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern. Ted Torbich brings you the stench of truth, Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern. With The Outlander, hosted by Heidi Hollis, following at 9 p.m. Then, bringing up Saturday's shows, we have Future Theatre Radio with hosts Bill and Nancy Burns, 6 p.m. Eastern. Fringe Radio coming in at 8 p.m. And last, but definitely not least, we have Pang Radio, brought to you by hosts Mike Lucas and Jamie Havocan, 9 p.m. Eastern. So make sure to tune in and check out all of our fantastic shows. Inception Radio Network, we'll see you there. Hey guys, are you always on the run but love Inception Radio Network? Inception Radio Network now has its own apps for each market where you can choose various different streams from 24K all the way up to 128. We also have our calendar, which shows every live show, the guest name, and the guest bio. We have our podcast function to where you can go in and listen to all of our past shows. And it's all on one great app. Go to your iTunes App Store and Android Market and search Inception Radio Network. I think you'll be pleased. For Inception Radio Network, Network's apps. This is Jamie Havigan. Get advice on aliens to ghosts, demons to angels, and from shadow people to the outlandish. Explore the paranormal with Heidi Hollis. The Outlander. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to me, Heidi Hollis, The Outlander. Remembering always, if it's weird, we're here, and we're giving you advice and insight on very outlandish topics. And the phone lines are open, chickens, 1-888-919-2355. And we're speaking to Rick Osman, and we're talking about pre-Columbian discoveries here, which, I I mean, this is history that no one's talking about, so I, I find it absolutely fascinating, Rick. I, what other things have you come across in some of your research in, for your book here? Uh, let me get the title. <laughs> it's uh, The Graves of the Golden Bear, uh, Ancient Monuments and Fortresses of the Ohio Valley. So, it, it, Graves of the Golden Bear, I mean, what, what, are, what are you finding? What have, what's uh, the indications that these graves are in existence? Well, I mentioned earlier the cave in Alabama and how it was, how it has this sigla over the entrance that is certainly, at least circumstantially, associated with King Arthur of legend at Tintagel. And Baron Blackett and Alan Wilson said that 
according to their research, after Maddock and uh, Arthur got to America, and they're in their two-year struggle, Arthur was actually killed in North America, and they desiccated the body in a cave for two years. It doesn't actually give the location of the cave in those chronicles in Wales. But then after the two years, they got their ships together <clears throat> and <laughs> went back to Wales, and um, the king's... Arthur's son, whose name escapes me right now, anyway, he was not old enough to become, to be coronated. So rather than put him in there with a regent that they could not control, they said, well, let's just hide the body until he is of age for two more years. So they did, and Arthur's son was coronated, and then they reburied him a third time. So there were at least three graves for Arthur, according to their research. Now, the gold, and his nickname, Arthur's nickname, was the bear. Oh. Now, the golden part comes in because of early French history at Mobile Bay, where, you know, Arthur and Maddox were supposed to have gone ashore initially. Um, in the French period, in fact, in 1701, when they were establishing the capital of the Louisiana Territory, what they call La Louisiane, they chose a place that they initially called Massacre Island because it was piled with human bones. And you have to understand, this is like a 60-acre island. This is not a small little rock. It was supposed to have been waist-deep in human bones, so they called it Massacre Island and built their first fortress and capital there. But they found out that you know hurricane season on the Gulf of Mobile means you need to be further inland. So they went up the estuary several miles and established a new capital, but in in all of their explorations around there, uh, the governor, the Bainville, had a younger brother who was a little bit insolent and um, kind of did his own thing. Anyway, he bribed one of the local Mobilian Indians into taking him to their sacred place, their place of the gods. And on that map, and even to this day, on some maps, it is called the Island of Statues. And... Uh, Iberville, that's the younger brother, he um, retrieved five statues, if you will, figurines, uh, terracotta, uh, but, but according to the description, it hints that they were terracotta made from yellow clay and glazed, something that none of the Native Americans were known for doing was glazed pottery. So this would have been a golden sheen terracotta. Of the five figurines, there was a man, a woman, a baby, an owl, and a bear. So, wow. <laughs> great. A lot, of symboli- a lot of symbolism right there in one little title. That It takes you across the whole story, essentially. And uh, yeah. where you're, gosh, that, that is mind-blowing. It, you know, I, I, wish, I wish that there was a more um, focused history given to our American students here about the natives and as far as it, as far back as it goes and, and all the things that were discovered, even if they, even if they are a mystery, even if they do have question marks above them. I, I mean, I think it would, you know, 
be fascinating to see how kids and students tackle the the subject. I mean, I don't know. I'm I, in my college days. I mean, they were always giving us challenges that were, you know, where all the answers weren't given to you straight away, and you kind of had to dig for it, like you have. And uh, you know, honestly, you've got a knack for remembering a lot of a lot of details that are go so far and so deep. Uh, I, I'm I'm just amazed by it. What what would your um, I know that you got another book that's going to be coming out uh, eventually that also indicates part of the Hollow Earth. I don't know if you if you're ready to get into that um, just well, yet, but well, uh, a couple other things before we yeah. go. Okay. One thing is um, May 31st, June 1st. I don't know which date I'll actually be speaking, but I will be appearing at the Midwest Epigraphic Society spring conference which is at the marriott airport at columbus ohio mm, okay and uh the and the whole list is good i mean if you were going to go there for a list of speakers i would probably be at the bottom of this list because these people are really good <laughs> that's that's very fascinating that, well that's great that's great um so and people could also go to your website um to find this information uh it's not it my website, I share a website with Dennis Crenshaw, and it's called The Hollow Earth Insider. So now we can go there. Gotcha. Okay, let's get into The Hollow Earth because this is something that I find really interesting. And probably, you know, people have touched a little bit on the subject here and there, how the Nazis were looking for the entrance to The Hollow Earth and how creatures live on the inside of The Hollow Earth and how there's... You know, the hollow earth has to exist because there are the, the, the poles shift a little bit. Uh, and that was the only way that people could explain it, that there must be a hollow earth. So, I mean, what's your angle on the whole topic? Okay, since you mentioned the pole shifting, the geographical poles don't shift much. But the magnetic poles sure do. And that's where a guy by the name of Edmund Halley commissioned or actually got royal funding in England to make an expedition throughout the North Atlantic to determine where the North Magnetic Pole really is or and now, was. Is this the same guy that named a uh, Hellbop Comet? No, Halley's Comet. Hel Halley's Comet? Okay, that's, right. that was his, correct? Yes. Okay, well, okay. there's a lot more history to him, and that'll be in the okay. next book, too. Halley okay. was also the guy who actually got Isaac Newton out of the closet uh, because without Edmund Halley, no one would have ever heard of Isaac Newton. It's, okay. it's just brass tacks. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody wanted to hear anything about new math because calculus was his invention. Although uh, um, Archimedes kind of invented it himself 1,600 years earlier, but uh, who cares? Uh, anyway, <laughs> so Edmund Halley went on this expedition and took magnetic compass readings all over the North Atlantic, hundreds of them, with really pretty good, as good as they could do at the time of navigation to know where he was when he took that reading. And it was a lot better than most people will tell you also, but that's kind of immaterial as far as the navigation. <clears throat> and when he came back with all of his readings and his data, he sat down for almost two and a half years and worked out a theory of how this could be possible that the magnetic pole and the geographical pole are not the same and probably never were and never will be the same. <laughs> but his theory envisions seven concentric spheres 
and he postulated that they may may be inhabited and may have lots of all kinds of different natural resources that we would not see on the surface. Well, he was laughed out of the Royal Academy, quite frankly. And yet, his science was never refuted. They never even tackled his science. They only rebelled at the idea. So let's advance this to, um, say, 19th century. Go up to the 19th century. And you have John Cleve Sims, and you have, oh man, a whole bunch of of folks who tried to get the United States government or the Swedish government or the Norwegian government or whatever government they fell under to sponsor expeditions to the North Pole, geographic pole, to look for the entrance to the hollow earth. There was no, you know, bona fide hard evidence that there was an entrance, but there was, by, by 1895, there was, a, there were two accounts, actually, of people who had gone to the center of the earth gone inside. Now, both of them are spurious as far as being able to track these people as real existing people. One of them was named Olaf Janssen, and uh, the other one was simply, I am the man, and it's in the book Eddardorfa. But you can read those accounts, and what what I find interesting is that they are self-consistent like Olaf Janssen and his father, Olaf was 12, and they sailed over the rim, and at that point, the seas were all disturbed, which it would be, and uh, they had a, a feeling of a malaise that came over them for several days until they got inside and everything was hunky-dory for three years while they lived in the company of these 12-foot-tall beings with their pet mammoths and giant fruit and stuff. Um, but... At the end of the three years, uh, Olaf and his father came out in Antarctica and were rescued, so to speak. Okay, there's a lot of holes in this story as far as <laughs> plausibility, but yeah. it is the account, the primary account. Then Edadorfa was a story of uh, a guy who was taken to the center of the earth through subterranean passageways probably entered at like Mammoth Cave or someplace like that. In fact, that's pretty much the description, although they never used that term, and lived there for quite some time and came back and wrote his book. But um, anyway. What's the name of that, what's the name of that book? Edadorfa. Oh, and it is literally called Edadorfa. Okay. Yes. And it's, uh, it's Aphrodite spelled backwards if you have trouble remembering that. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> and, and it is, although it is almost certainly a work of total fiction, there are a number of things in it that are, as far as pure Newtonian physics, are likely accurate if there are subterranean worlds. For instance, you get to a certain depth and there's zero gravity. You get beyond that depth and the gravity's pulling you the other way because there's more mass outside that point of the radius than there is inside it. I see. And so with the, the science that was known to these two fellows, I mean, they, they were consistent in, in detailing the same similar. kind of experience, very similar. I mean, they would not know this. or I mean, 
Honestly, well, is that what you're... Uh, you know, you can't say that they would not know this because we don't know. We don't know. Okay, we can surmise that. Okay, they probably weren't world astound physicists writing this, but that doesn't mean they were dullards either, because it's just like today. I can get online and go read Phys Org and look up anything I want to look up, or JSTORs if I have a pass, because I'm not going to break their terms of usage because they get arrested when you do that. <laughs> Interesting. So. I- when it comes to the hollow earth then you're suggesting that these entrances they do exist but it's just a matter of I mean do you think that somehow our governments may have found them and actually gone in or I mean what's your uh... my contention is that the government if they can't find a good sized space where they want it they'll make it now does that mean they can get all the way to the center of the earth through subterranean no it does not uh, but my my interpretation of the physics, both Newtonian and Einsteinian and quantum, is that there has to be a, at least some small void at the exact center of the Earth. Because at the exact center of the Earth, the acceleration due to gravity is zero. Or it may even be a little bit negative. Now, I'm not talking negative Gs like you experience in an airplane ride. I'm talking actual negative gravity in in reality, it's more like a repulsion force than it is an attractive force. What would so, that look like, essentially? I, I, I could not begin to visualize <laughs> that. <laughs> okay, because I can't. I can't at all. But that's, uh, I've never heard of a negative... Uh, well, it's actually, depending on how you interpret the mathematics, it's actually supported by the quantum physics mathematics. But that's where it gets really interesting. Because in quantum physics, you have this thing called pair production. And pair production means that you produce a particle and an antiparticle basically from pure energy. That's taking the Einstein theory of E equals mc squared and swapping the terms so that you end up with m equals uh, whatever that would be. I don't know it off the top of my head. But E (laughs) ends ends up on the bottom. So it takes a tremendous amount of energy to make a little bitty bit of matter. Well, there's only a couple of power sources that we can think of, even with all this exotic quantum physics stuff, that could provide that kind of energy to make new matter from essentially nothing. One of those is a black hole. So when you have a black hole and this is always ignored in the popular literature, anytime you have a black hole, there's also a white hole. Actually, there's a whole giant array of white holes because matter falls in here and goes through a wormhole and comes out over here as energy, as a white hole. But when you have enough energy and, according to Richard Feynman, one of the best quantum physics lecturers ever, Anytime you have pair production, the only way that you actually get new matter out of it is if the particle and antiparticle do not annihilate each other. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a huge gradient in gravitational fields so that the antiparticle is drawn back into that field and the real particle remains and becomes matter. So the only way that can happen that I can see is if there's actually a wormhole connecting the exact center of the Earth 
to some black hole someplace, making the exact center of the Earth a white hole, which explains why we have... Have you ever heard of the theory of a growing Earth? I have not heard that one, no. Okay. Get on YouTube, get on any place, uh, and type in search term, growing Earth, Neil Adams, N-E-A-L-A-D-A-M-S. And he's not the only one, but he's the only one who is also a good animator. In fact, he's such a good animator, he's been an artist for DC Comics drawing Batman, Green Arrow, Superman, you name it, he's drawn it, and he's still in the business. He started in like 1960. Hmm. So anyway, um, and Neil will be at Megacon in Orlando, March 15, 16, 17. So I'm going to go hook up with him. But anyway, Neil's theory of growing Earth and his animation of the theory is absolutely compelling. I, in fact, I go beyond that. It's absolutely convincing to me. And so hollow, well, yeah, in order for it to actually work it, the way I see it, it has to have something, you know, it might not be any bigger than a beach ball as far as how big the void is. That it has to be there. Wow, and all I remember in uh, school was seeing this glowing molten lava stuff in the center of the earth that they would what? show us. You know, that's that's all I was ever educated about. Yeah, I've got a question here for you that uh, someone is posting. Uh, they're asking if you believe that Mel's Hole could be an entrance entrance into the hollow earth. Do you know, uh, have you heard of that? Uh, Mel's I, Hole? I am aware of Mel's Hole. Okay. Uh, you could drive a freight train into it for miles probably. Well, you could drop a freight train into it. Um, nobody knows just how deep it is. And to the best of my knowledge, no one's ever tried to explore it. And I think with you know what we have as far as vertical takeoff UAVs, someone should be trying to explore it. But nobody has. And why do you think that is? I mean, honestly, I, I think that this is another way of controlling the masses from not getting the the truth of the matter honestly i mean what other reason would there be they're trying to own the information well that or there's just nothing there worth talking about it could just mm -hmm. be a big hole <laughs> now, there's there's a similar uh an analogous um space i believe it's in czechoslovakia maybe hungary i'm not sure someplace over in there and it's you can actually do what they call base jumping you can jump off the rim of this hole with your parachute and go 900 feet straight down <coughs> and climb back out eventually. But it's huge, and it's probably not the only one. True, very true. But the, I guess the odd anomalies for people who don't know about Mel's Hole, I mean, I guess this is a, some kind of peculiar hole somewhere in Washington State. Um, I, I don't know. People have some of the stories that I've heard. They just it seems so fantastic. Uh, odd events uh, occurring in and about Mel's Hole. I mean, what kinds of things? I mean, if there is an entrance to the Hollow Earth, would it have any kind of strange anomaly going on, like like this Mel's Hole? I mean, uh, well, I if if there is any truth to it at all. Well, okay, let's back up. If it reached the center of the Earth, then there would certainly be field gradients of every type of exotic radiation and electromagnetic, anything you can think of. <coughs> um, 
But is it in Ellensburg, Washington? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and also I don't know. I've I've heard of these odd little bits put out there that the Nazis, that Hitler was looking for an entrance to this hollow earth because he supposedly would see creatures that lived in the center of the earth and uh, would surface at times and scare the bejesus out of him, I suppose you could say. Um, and uh, at, at times he'd be in meetings and he would fall to his knees claiming, don't you see it? And essentially he wanted to get the upper, upper hand of these beings that said they resided in the center of the earth and uh, sent people out to find these entrances to this, the center of the earth to, you know, I guess, uh, beat them in their game. Um, I don't know if that's something that you'd ever heard of, but this is... Uh... Well, I'm, I'm aware of it. I haven't seen any documentation where he actually fell to his knees in meetings, but... <laughs> Wouldn't that be uh, great? He's, he, there is documentation that he sent explorers to Tibet, Nepal, um, oh, wow, just almost every place. Uh, he tried Iceland for a while until war broke out, and they said, uh, no, no more. You're not welcome here. <laughs> and did they find anything? I mean, what what's, what's the report say? Well, the report, and one of the best books on that is actually uh, from the late uh, Jerry, uh, God, what was Jerry's last name? Jerry E. Smith. Anyway, Jerry wrote a book, co-wrote a book about the Holy Lance, basically the spear that pierced Jesus' side, and how Hitler was bound and determined to use that to win the war, because it would somehow in, imbue him with supernatural powers. But they were also out looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Just like the movie said, they really were out looking for the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the Holy Grail and a lot of other relics that they felt would imbue power. So, did they find anything? Well, if they did, it didn't imbue them with the power to win the war. So, my no. guess would be, no, they didn't find it. I would say not. You know, I heard that you also have a show, something called Unraveling. I have two what shows. Is, okay, well, do tell. What, you know, where can people hear about this, and what are they about? Okay, Unraveling the Secrets comes on at midnight Eastern tomorrow at psn-radio.com or soupmedianetwork.com. And tomorrow night, we're actually, our guest is Dean DeLucia, who is the organizer, host, originator, whatever, of a website called All Planets Hollow, <laughs> incidentally. <laughs> and we'll be talking with Dean for a couple hours about that. And he's a trooper because it's like 3 a.m. his time when we start. He's actually in Brazil. He's a professional translator. And and Dean actually got us a uh, – he transcribed and translated a story from, I believe, Spanish that came from Ecuador, or actually the border between Ecuador and Brazil, of a tribe called the Macuxis. And the Macuxi have a very strong tradition of actually having had regular trade with the folks in the center of the earth over many, many, many generations and were, in fact, where they were to guard the entrance. But something happened, somebody got greedy or whatever, and they 
lost their connection to the folks at the center of the earth who then sealed the entrance somehow. You know, that's interesting because, you know, you're talking about 12-foot-tall uh, creatures in the center of the earth, and I have heard, uh, I believe in that area where people reportedly had a lot of contact and still in, uh, how could you say, when they're in their their, their exhaustive meditative states, uh, they still spiritually see these 12-foot-tall uh, beings. So yeah, is that... That's there's actually a there's a fifteen sixty two Spanish map that shows uh the conquistadors coming up against twelve foot people and saying, Nah, I don't think we want to take them on <laughs> <laughs> You know, the giants roamed the earth at one point. I mean it's even biblical. I mean these these giants were real and we wonder, you know, where'd they all go and you yeah. gotta wonder if the hollow earth is uh is home to them now. They could stay there for all I care, honestly, so <laughs> It's all good well, by me. They, I think, I don't think we'd have a say in whether they stay there or not. Mm-hmm. If they want to come out, I don't think we could stop them if they exist at all. But anyway, <laughs> I talked about giants as well as pygmies and the skeletons of each that were found throughout the United States for well, still finding them now and then. But you never hear about them in the news. The last. Uh, newspaper article I found about a giant skeleton actually hitting the newspaper was in 1941 in the San Antonio Press. And they had a photograph of the skull, not the full skeleton, but they estimated him at 7 feet 11. My goodness. That is, uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard of, you know, bones and whatnot being put on display with uh, carnivals that would travel around. And But were they real? You know, we'll just never know. My goodness, Rick, I want to, you know, our, our time is already up, and I really want to thank you for coming on and, and talking about things I, I have not personally heard much of. So it's absolutely fascinating. Well, I'll come back and tell you my interpretation of nursery rhymes sometime. Oh, please do. I would love that. Jack and the Beanstalk, let's go there. <laughs> you know, you, this has been absolutely fascinating. Everybody, once again, a wonderful end to an awesome Friday. You Remember, you can catch me here every Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. You've been listening to me, Heidi Hollis, the Outlander on Inception Radio Network. Remembering always, if it's weird, we're here. Good night, everybody. And what a tea, Mike. Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. 
play with the best. Switch to MetroPCS and an unlimited LTE plan and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. MetroPCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on MetroPCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions.